Look at Revelation chapter 3. And let's start reading in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true. No, that's Jesus Christ, amen. He that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast. Look at that. Hold that fast, which thou hast that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. My new name. Heavenly Father, please help us. This passage of Scripture is so meaningful, it is so powerful. Historically, um, you accomplished everything that you said you would right here. Father, help us to learn from it. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of things. Verse 7, the church of the angel at Philadelphia. The church of Philadelphia, of course, the city of brotherly love. This is an actual church, and uh, this was the church that there's no condemnation here. There's nothing negative that Christ says about this church. And this describes a period of church history that went from about 1500 to almost 1900. And in this period, God set before them an open door, and there are some reasons. But look at verse 7. Just a couple of things as we start. He that hath the key of David. What's the key of David? Well, the key of David was given to a man to control the treasury. And so when he opened the door to the treasury, there were funds. You had access to the treasury. When he closed it, you didn't. Well, Jesus Christ has the, the key. He's the door. He opens the door to the power of God. Amen? He opens the door to fruit and, and so many different things. And that's who our Savior is. But I want you to notice something about this church in contrast to the church at Sardis. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, and unto the angel of the church in Sardis, and don't ever let any... I know that you might have a footnote that says that this is... This, that, that word angel means messenger, and messenger is the pastor and to the pastor... Well, to me, it says angel. You know, and I know a lot of pastors, and not many of them are angels. You know what I mean? It's just an angel. And what's interesting is every other place where there's an angel speaking, you don't think it's a pastor. Was it, was, was it pastors that were singing about the Messiah being born this morning we are talking about? It wasn't pastors. It was angels. Uh, so this is an angel. All right, but look at what it says. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write... These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Look what it says here. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. This was a church that had all of the right doctrine, much of it. They believed in the Apostles' Creed. They believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But they were lost. The Bible says, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. 
The Bible says, and this is the record that God has given unto us eternal life, and this life is in the Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. That tells me these people aren't saved. They have a name that says that they're Christians, but they're not. So they have a false name. In Philadelphia, they have the name of God. Do you see what it says in verse 12? He says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God. That is such a wonderful thing. Do you know that God has sealed you with his name? Isn't that a blessing? But what is the characteristic that distinguishes this Philadelphia period? Well, if you look in verse 8, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, then no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength. Well, that's not much of a compliment, isn't it? You know, that's like saying, you know, for a fat lady, you don't sweat much. That's not much of a compliment. Amen? Yeah, that's, my dad used to tell that story. Little boy, if you can't say something nice, don't say it at all. So he walks up to a lady at church, can't think of anything to say, and that's what he said to her. Can you imagine? <laughs> that could have been me, man. I, could have, I guarantee you I could have done something like that. Now, listen, you have a little strength. Well, why is that important? Because Jesus Christ said, the Apostle Paul said, his strength is made perfect in weakness. In weakness. When I try to do everything my way, it messes up. Kelly. When I try to do it my way, it messes up. But when we rely on the Holy Spirit and the power of God, it may seem like a little strength to us, but that's great strength to God. But then look at what it says. And has kept my word, and has not denied my name. That key of David, it's more than just opening the treasury. It is, what, what is the defining characteristic of David? He was a man after God's own heart. How did we know he was a man after God's own heart? God said that. How did he demonstrate that? By giving us the longest chapter in the Bible about his love for the word of God, Psalm 119. What is the key to this period? A love for and a defense of the word of God. They, he, thou hast kept my word, and if you keep his word, you won't deny his name. And so God set before them an open door. In about 1435, 1450, right in there, Gutenberg invented that movable metal type of printing press, and it revolutionized the world. Of course, the first thing to come off of that was the Gutenberg Bible. It was a Bible in Latin. But that revolutionized the world because printing could happen. Wycliffe had translated his Bible in the 1290s to early 1300s. That had come out, but it would cost you a year's wage to buy one. You couldn't get a Bible because somebody had to copy it by hand. By the time Tyndale comes out with his Bible, 1525, the printing press was available. And the Bible explodes. We end up with the Tyndale Bible and the Matthews Bible, the Coverdale Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, and then the King James Bible in 1611. And he had purified his word seven times. Amen. And God gave that to us. And what happened at that time, the defeat of the Spanish Armada, I think it was 1588, the Spanish Armada is coming and they're going to fight the British. And God decided, nah, I don't want the Spanish to be in charge anymore because of the Roman Catholicism. And so God sends a storm, wipes out the armada. They have fires and storms. By the time they get to England, England destroys them. And from that point on, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And now they have the King James Bible in their hand. They're encompassing the globe. 
and they covered, they, they were in control of 85% of the globe. But they weren't good people. Man, what they did in their colonization was horrible. The British people were mean, man. But everywhere they went, there was a King James Bible with them. And that Bible went out. And the Word of God, it, it had free course, and people started changing because when people get the Word of God in their hands, something happens. Something happens. The church no longer could control what the Word said because they had it in their hands. Remember what Tyndale said. He was talking to a bishop, and he said, not too long in the future, the plowboy will know more, word, more of the Word of God than you yourself do. And that's the way it is now, Amen. We can know the Word of God because we have it in our hands. And so God opened up the world and there was a great period of revival that took place. A lot of people give the Reformers credit. I believe that it happened in spite of the Reformers. Because if you believe what Martin Luther believed, then you've got to be baptized to be saved. Then the Jews need to be have their homes burned down and live in barns. And if you believe what they believe, then the Baptists ought to be killed and I just don't see that God blessed Martin Luther's ministry that much. But what happened was those people, they professed to believe in sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. And so the Bible started going out all over the world. And when people have the word of God, they hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit is in them. And all of a sudden things start changing in their lives and changing in the world. That's what happened. So for 250 years, this Bible went around the world and changed the world. But there was a problem. In the early 1500s, it would have been very hard to translate the Bible. And, and Tyndale and these guys, they did a great job. But the problem was there wasn't a Greek text to use. A man named Desiderius Erasmus in 1517 published his Greek text. It came to be known as the Received Text. It was vitally important. That's what Luther used to translate the Bible into uh, German and after he did that, within the next hundred years, there were something like a thousand translations of the Bible that came out in the languages of the people. But the problem was all of those nations that had the Bible in their own language, all of them were within marching distance of Rome. And the Catholic Church could still march. They could get an army together and come and crush them. So what did God do? He opened up America. And then in America, 1638, 1635, Roger Williams comes. He gets banished from, the, from Massachusetts because it was against the law to believe anything but what the state told you to believe. They run him out. He goes and buys Rhode Island from the Indians. John Clark comes over, 1638. He gets run out. And so he and a group of people go to Providence, Rhode Island, or Newport, Rhode Island, uh, uh, Roger Williams goes to Providence. John Clark goes to Newport, establishes First Baptist Church in America. From that point on, there's now religious liberty on these shores. We've told you over and over again how when the Jews came over, the pogroms were going on in Spain and in South America, and they were burning their houses and hanging Jews. When they came to America, they go to New York, and Paul Stuyvesant says, we don't want that filthy sect here, and ran them out. But they heard there was a place called Rhode Island where they could have liberty. They came. They built the first synagogue there, the Torah synagogue. You can go and see it today. But even there, they have a trap door in the floor because they couldn't believe there's anything called liberty. From America comes out this great light of missions that goes around the world, and they did it by taking this Bible and what this said and translating it into the language of the people. In 1793, 
William Carey sails from England. He's a British man, the father of modern missions, a Baptist preacher. He sails to India and translates the Bible into 27 different languages. Not only did he have to do the, to translate the Bible, he would also have to write a grammar for those languages, a dictionary for those languages, so that people could actually learn the Word of God because they couldn't read. He had to teach them all of those things. Missions spread all over the world. Adoniram Judson goes to Burma and translates the Word of God into Burmese. It's just amazing to see what these people did. But what happened? How did we end up with this? With, with this weak, anemic Christianity. What in the world happened? In 1816, there was a man named William Colgate. Colgate toothpaste? He was a Baptist. And uh, he loved the Word of God. So he established the American Bible Society in 1816... And the purpose of the American Bible Society was to publish the Word of God and circulate it around the world. Well, by the 1830s, there came to be a problem. This was a, this was a, a Protestant organization supported by Baptists and all other Protestant sects. And what happened was William Carey had translated the Bible into uh, Bengali. And then that had been, he had just died, and some of his followers had revised it, corrected it, made sure it was okay. Well, they had petitioned, they had petitioned to the British Foreign and uh, the, the British and Foreign Bible Society to have it printed. And they had done it before. But some baby baptizing, pedo-baptist missionaries, had told the Bible Society that they were going to do this, but that they had translated the word baptize as immerse. The word baptizo, which means Immerse. They had translated it. Immerse. The Bible Society wouldn't print the Bible. Even though it was supported and established by Baptists, they wouldn't print it. So they contacted the American Bible Society. The American Bible Society wouldn't print it. And the American Bible Society was started by a Baptist and funded primarily by Baptists. But they wouldn't publish it. The, the, the Americans from 1916 through 1936, when the, or eight, I'm sorry, 1816 through 1836, had given $170,000 to the American Bible Society. Now, I want you to think about how much that is. What would that be, $100 million now? I mean, we're talking a substantial amount of money. And only 30000 of that had gone to Baptist missionaries, to Baptist works. Well, it seems like they should have known something was wrong by that already. Because in their German translation that they were printing, they actually, you know how the German had translated it? That the American Bible Society was printing? They translated baptize as sprinkle. And these Baptists were still paying for it. Just pay for it. Well, they decided when they wouldn't print Carey's Bible, they said, you know what, we're not going to have that. So they started the American Foreign Bible Society in 1836. Well, that was a good idea for them to do that. The only problem was the man that was in charge of it was a man named uh, Spencer Houghton Cone. Spencer Cone was an amazing man. He, he was born in the 1700s. He was saved in 1814. I want you to think about this. He had gone to Princeton when he was 12 years old. 
Can you imagine? A brilliant, brilliant man. He had to leave when he was 14 because his father had lost his mind and he had to go and support the family. So he got hired at the Princeton Academy teaching Latin at 14 years old. By the time he was 16 years old, he was headmaster of a school. That didn't pay very well, so he became an actor. He was an actor for seven years. Well, at the end of that time, his brother-in-law and he bought a paper called the Baltimore Whig, and he was really involved in politics. But when he was 28 years old, 1814, he got saved. And his testimony is a wonderful thing. I wish I had time to read it to you tonight. It's just a beautiful, beautiful story about how God saved this man and then saved his wife. By 1815, he was pastoring a church and was so popular as a preacher that he was elected chaplain of the United States House of Representatives. He'd been saved a year. This was the kind of guy that could read entire books in one sitting and quote them verbatim. Just a brilliant, brilliant man, about six foot two. And imagine what that was like in the early 1800s. He was a giant and just a handsome man, winsome, really loved God. But he had a love for the classical languages before he had a love for the word of God. And he got to the place where he actually despised the King James Version of the Bible. And he was the head of the Baptist denomination in America. So when the American and Foreign Bible Society was established, what he wanted to do was revise the King James Version of the Bible as well as see to it that foreign versions were translated properly. And so he would stand up and make all of these speeches about how we've got to stand on doctrine, on the truth, and, and we believe in standing on doctrine, we believe in standing on the truth, but what he didn't know was that, and don't miss this, this is so important, I'll bet you there's not 50 people in America that know what I'm about to tell you. This, now, that sounds pretty bold, doesn't it? But people don't teach this stuff. When the King James translators translated the word baptizo, or baptizine, the Greek words, when they translated those as baptized, we have been taught, I was taught, and I have told you that that was a transliteration. Here's what a transliteration is. That's where you take a Greek word and you transfer those Greek letters into English letters and it makes a new word. So baptizo, you change those letters into the English word or into English letters and that just becomes baptize. But it, it, here's what I was taught, that it wasn't translated. If you translated it, you would have translated it as immerse. That's what I was taught. How many of you have heard that before? You know what the only problem with that is? It's not true. Baptize was in, the Engl in an English dictionary as an English word in common usage in 1292. When the English translators, when the King James translators translated that word as baptize, baptize was a commonly used English word that meant immerse. Why didn't they use immerse? It didn't mean immerse yet. In 1604, in a dictionary, which was when they were making the translation, it meant to put in, to cover over, to become. It, it had all these different meanings. It did not mean baptize. It didn't take on that meaning until 1613, after the King James Version had been translated, and because of the word baptize, immerse became... Uh, uh, acquired the meaning that it has now. 
so here's the problem. These guys like Spencer Cohn and all of these others who attacked the Bible based on that word, they were just wrong. And the word baptize, it does mean immerse in the English language. It's an English word. And so what they did was they began attacking the veracity of our Bible in all of their meetings. So here's what happens. 1838, they established this American and Foreign Bible Society. Spencer Cohn wants to immediately begin printing a revised version of the Bible. But man, there were a bunch of Baptists who said, no, we're not going to do that. There were even some of them, and, and, and this is a great quote. Let me just read this to you. Spencer Cohn's sons, this is Spencer Cohn's biography. It was published in 1856 by his sons. He died in 1855. Um, here's what these guys were really surprised at. A great deal, this is a direct quote from Cohn's sons, a great deal had been said in regard to the translators and the translation of the scriptures. He had heard his brethren here utter the most singular remarks in relation to the 49 translators appointed by King James. And some had gone so far as to pronounce the Bible as translated by the distinguished 49, a perfect work. And he has that in italics with an exclamation point. He was incredulous that somebody would think that this was a perfect Bible. He just couldn't believe it. He mocked them for saying that. But in 1678, there was, we have a Baptist confession of faith. I've got a copy of it. And this is from the Orthodox Creed, 1678, a group of Baptists publishing what they believed, talking about the Bible. It says, talking about they believe that the Bible is inspired, the Word of God. And listen to what they say about the Holy Scriptures. And by the Holy Scriptures, we understand the canonical books of the Old and New Testament as they are now translated into our English mother tongue, of which there hath never been any doubt of their verity and authority in the Protestant churches of Christ to this day. Sometimes people give us the idea that this concept that we believe in a preserved word of God in the English language is something new from the 20th century. They believed it in 1678. Tyndale believed it about his translation. Wycliffe believed it about his translation. These Baptists in the 1830s believed it about the King James Version of the Bible. But here's what happened. The, they had established in 1638 that they would only translate the Bible in foreign languages. That's the only way they could keep unity because it was going to tear the Baptist denomination apart. They should have torn the Baptist denomination apart. We're not a denomination. We're groups of independent Baptist churches. Nobody speaks for this church other than us based on what the Word of God says. But here's what happened. 1638, they decide, okay, they overrule Cone and they say we'll only make the translations in foreign languages. Well, 1849, they removed that rule. But Cone hadn't waited. Some of his cronies in 1842 had already made another translation of the Bible. W.T. Brantley, a great Baptist preacher, examined it and said, you can't read ten words without finding a change. They always start by saying, we're only going to change baptize. They changed every tenth word. All right? So now they decide, 1849, they remove that rule, 1850. They say, Cone leads the group of men to say, we're going to revise the Bible. You know what the Baptists did? They said no. We will not do it. So Cone resigned, starts the Baptist Union, or the, the, the uh, um, it's not the Baptist Union, but the, the, the American Bible Union. 
the American Bible Union. And here's why it's important not to call it Baptist, because it was an interdenominational society. And I want you to think about something. These men who were supposedly wanting to translate the Bible based on doctrinal reasons, listen to what they did. They decided in 1850, Cohn and this guy Wyckoff translated the Bible with, with help from others. Right away, immediately. They had revised the Bible. Then they called for a group to revise that revision. And so they wanted to gather together all the best scholars in the world to do this. And so listen to the people they get. Now remember, they're doing it for doctrinal reasons. That's what you always hear. They're doing it for doctrinal reasons. One of the men they got to do it was a guy named Alexander Campbell. Do you know who Alexander Campbell is? He founded the Church of Christ, Nicholasville, Kentucky. He was a Presbyterian preacher that became a Baptist preacher who rejected Baptist principles and started teaching that you had to be baptized to be saved. He established the Disciples of Christ. They had him as one of their translators. Now, no one did more to destroy the churches of Kentucky than Alexander Campbell. Listen to who else they got. A guy named Philip Schaff. Philip Schaff was a guy, he was from America. He had gone to, England, or to Germany, had learned modernism and heresy in Germany, and he brought that heresy back to America, destroyed the seminaries in America. He is the editor of the revised version of the Bible in America and the editor of the 1901 American Standard Version. That's who they got to translate the Baptist Bible. Now, here's the thing. Most of us have never heard of the Baptist Union versions. And the amazing thing about that was they started, they started, they put the, the Gospels out in 1862. They finished the New Testament in 1864. Then they had to revise that. So in 1865, they came out with a new New Testament. Then they revised that again. Then they revised it again. By 1912, they almost had it right, and they did another one in 1913. But here's where this becomes so important. None of us have ever heard of the Baptist Union versions. But here's where this becomes so important. In 1870, there was the, the, the Anglican Church had their Canterbury Convocation, and that's where the Archbishop of Canterbury calls the, all their, their leaders together in the Church of England. And they decided that since the Americans are revising the Bible, we better go ahead and do that too. The result of that was the, the English Revised Version of 1881. And here's what they said. One of the translators of the Revised Version said, they keep the Baptist Union Version on the table and they compare it for every passage. They said very clearly, listen to what Thomas Armitage, Thomas Armitage became one of the, the presidents of the, Bible, of the, of the uh, Bible Union. And listen to what he said about this. He's talking about the Bible Union. It's tracts, pamphlets, addresses, reports, and revisions so completely revolutionized public opinion on the subject of revision that a new literature was created on the subject, both in England and America, and a general demand for revision culminated in action on that subject by the Convocation of Canterbury in 1870. Do you know what they did in 1870? They called for a new translation of the Bible. You wonder where this Bible babble, you wonder where this potpourri of modern versions, the Bible of the month club, you got the, the Ebonics version, you got the gender neutral version, you have all these Bibles that are coming out. Why does that happen? Because a bunch of Baptists didn't believe in the preservation of God's word. And here's where this becomes so important. Do you know what happened? By 1900, God had closed the door.
And no longer do you have this great missions work going on. Now you have a mess. Now you have Laodicea, where it's all about the rights of the people, and we have need of nothing, and we don't know that we're poor and miserable and blind and naked. That all happened because there were a group of Baptists that didn't keep his word. It is so vitally important for us as Bible believers to understand what happens when you change God's word. Do you know that the revised version of the Bible changed this in more than 30,000 places? 30,000. And here's what we always hear. There are no significant changes. How many of you ever heard that? Is it logically possible to make 30,000 insignificant changes in anything? No. No. God has preserved His Word. Man, I, I could spend the next three hours talking to you about how perfect your Bible is. But you need to know that it was Baptists that brought about Laodicea. That's hard to believe, isn't it? You say, how can a group of Baptists do that? Well, if a church is a called-out assembly of born-again, baptized believers meeting voluntarily in a specific location for the purpose of carrying out the Great Commission, observing and protecting the ordinances and doing all things whatsoever the Lord commanded, if that's what a church is, and biblically it is, then Baptists are the only people that can defend that. And if this is the church age, and it is, and you've got churches that are getting away from the Word of God, how is the church keeping His Word? They're not. They're not. That's where this becomes so important to us. We can be a Philadelphian church in this Laodicean age if we will believe this Word and then tell it to somebody else. Like Jimmy's talking to his buddy at work. That's exactly what we need to do. Now, here's the deal. We don't need to go out there and tell them about the Canterbury Convocation of 1870. Right? But we do need to tell them, thus saith the Lord. He said it. That settles it, whether I believe it or not. My belief in gravity has nothing to do with whether or not gravity is true. Someone's belief in the preservation of God's Word, it doesn't say anything about the Bible, but it says an awful lot about them. We need to understand God has preserved His Word. He told us in His Bible what was going to happen, and it has happened exactly like He said it. Why did the Philadelphian period end? Because Baptists didn't keep His Word. Folks, we need to keep His Word. Amen? Your testimonies tonight? Praise God. Amen. But the only reason any of that's happened is because of this. Amen? Let's keep it. Let's stand on it. Let's pray.